Well, hello. Uh, my name is Brett Lewis. I am a member here. I had the privilege of doing the internship last year, and I'm going to be teaching today on Jesus the God-Man. Uh, but before we do that, would uh, sir, if you want to pray for us. Amen. So we are going to be uh, continuing on in our series of uh, foundations, which is our two-year sort of theology intro class uh, that helps us just get a broad range of how do we put the Bible together. So um, today we are going to be covering Jesus the God-man. So last week, Josh helped us see how uh, the Christians should relate to the law and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so now we're going to dive into this character of the God-man, the God-man. So... <clears throat> You guys, if you have a paper, uh, you should see the main idea on the, at the top of your page. It says, beholding the glory of Jesus as the, God the Son incarnate is vital for both our hearts and our churches. And so this is going to be a two-part series. So it's going to be this week and next week. We're going to keep that same main idea throughout both weeks. And uh, to start us off, I have a question for you guys. So, in honor of Halloween being a couple of weeks ago, I don't know your various views on Halloween are, but just give me, shout out some of the most uh, famous uh, Halloween costumes that you can remember. I want to see what you guys think. Ghosts? Ghosts? Okay. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. A fairy. A fairy. Oh, man. I just realized I forgot my Bible. Oh, here's one here. Okay. A fairy. Yes. Santa Claus. Yeah, so um, I do love watching little kids walk around. The other night I was on the hill when it happened, and there's a bunch of little kid dinosaurs just waddling around. Um, but I think one of the most well-known Halloween costumes is pretty recognizable is that of Frankenstein. Or if, I don't know how you say it in the German way, but Frankenstein or something. But that, uh, that costume is popular because of a novel that uh, was popular around the 18 or 1900s. And in that, uh, there is the, this man who is, he's sort of pieced together. And you have this man who, he's got body parts of a cadaver kind of cut off and sewn on. And then they're all united into one thing. And then finally he gets electrocuted and life is given to him. But he's big and clunky. He's not really that, uh, that um, he doesn't fit together super well. And he's, it's kind of awkward. You're not really sure what to make of him. And so the reason I bring that up, that of Frankenstein, is to see, do we think of Christ like that? Is he this awkward, big, clunky, we're not really sure what to do with him? Do we just kind of like, I don't know, he's some other category, he's not really man and he's not really God. Is that our conception of him or is he both fully man and fully God? And that's what I believe the scriptures teach us is that Christ is both fully man and fully God. So <clears throat> as we are thinking about this, I have a Another question that you guys, uh, I want you guys to think about and tell me your experience on. A professor of Christian theology, his name is Stephen Wellam, he writes in an article that he wrote for Crossway, he says, Within the evangelical church, there is rampant confusion regarding the person and work of Christ. If our world is confused, we are not surprised. 
But when confusion about church, or sorry, about Christ is within the church, this is a serious matter. So do you believe him? Do you think there's rampant confusion about Christ in the church? Anybody can attest to like, yeah, I have seen some rampant confusion in the church. <laughs> yes? Josh? Yeah. So in that uh, study, it's a good point. He he surveys the broader evan- evangelical church in the U.S. and he's talking about how sometimes there's people who will deny either the full humanity of Jesus or the full de- deity of Jesus. Um, not really sure what to do. The whole it links to like this trinitarian stuff that we're kind of not really sure what to do with this. And then out of the outflow of that, there's this confusion about who Jesus is. But I think that uh, this is why our, um, this is a part of our main idea for the, the class is that, again, it is vital for us to uh, hold on to the correct view, the biblical view of Jesus, and that helps shape our, uh, we, ha- we behold his glory as a result of that. And so, again, uh, I think the main reason this is so important is because by getting this doctrine correct, we behold the glory of Christ, which is the, um, this, there's a quote on your sheet that's, that's by John Owen. Uh, He's a Puritan pastor and theologian, and he writes in his book, The Glory of Christ. So read along with me. It says, So, when by faith we behold the glory of Christ as we meditate on his divine human person, we should not see him merely as glorious glorious, uh, in himself. We must rather make every effort to let that glory so fill our hearts with love, admiration, adoration, and praise to him that our souls will be transformed into his image. So, as we study these doctrines of the person of Christ as uh, God the Son incarnate, our goal is not to stop at the awesome mystery that is seen in God adding humanity to himself, God the Son adding humanity to himself, but our goal is more so to let our hearts be filled with love and adoration and praise for Christ as we see how much he has done for us and how awesome of a Savior he is. So as we do this, it is not primarily a head exercise, but a heart exercise. So the doctrines we're going to learn today and the, what the Bible teaches on this, that is translating to our hearts. So now we're going to begin the first section. Uh, I've labeled it on your paper. There's, uh, based on the main idea, there's God, the Son, incarnate. Um, so first, we need, to, we need to recognize that Jesus is God. So who is Jesus according to the Bible? He is God, and we need to put that in the framework of the Bible. That's how we, get, we guard against false teaching is by going through what the Word of God says. <clears throat> so, and we should be intentional to describe God, just as I have done here, as God the Son incarnate, because that really gives us a picture of his full deity and his full humanity, okay? So that's intentional language there. God the Son incarnate. First part, God. You can refer to uh, more for this. We're going to just give, do a very brief intro, but Ben Robin did a couple of classes, classes on the Trinity. If you want to check out more about this, uh, go on the podcast and find the recording. But uh, in short, there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. And those three persons all share in the divine being, okay? So they are all fully God. But they are three distinct persons. And God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And I think one of the reasons that it's important for us to realize that we need to start here 
we're not going to go there, but if you look in Acts 17, Paul in Athens, there's some idolaters that are there, and they have idols all around them abounding. And what is Paul's first move to go and share the gospel with them? He first tells them about the God who created everything. He tells them about their Lord God, because that is foundational. Without that, Jesus doesn't make sense. So we must start with a correct view of who God is as triune. And then from that, we can develop our a view of Christ, who Christ is as the second person of the Trinity. So if you look at those verses there, it's just some support. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, John 1, 1 through 4, and 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Those are just going to yeah, prove to you that in the Bible, God is triune. And that is a beautiful thing. and something to be celebrated. So now moving on to the Son incarnate. The Son incarnate. So <clears throat> as we think about who the Son is, we're putting him in the place of the Scriptures, okay? So we first must ask the question, why does the Son have to come? What do you guys think? Thinking back to previous lessons, why does the sun have to come? Yeah. It has to give light to the earth. Give light to the earth. Okay. Yes. 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 Why does God have to take on flesh? What's why did that specific way? To be the new Adam. The new Adam. Okay. So. Back all the way in Genesis, we're going to see it, uh, humanity, there's the fall. And so humanity takes, or is now cursed from, by sin. And from that, since that, that time in Genesis 3.15, we've been waiting for a savior to come back. One who would be a, a seed of the woman who would redeem humanity from the curse. And so as we come to the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there's two realities that are crystal clear. Two realities. The first is that only God can save and the second is that he's going to do it through a man. So only God can save, and he's going to do it through a man. And so this is why when Jesus heals a paralytic and the uh, scribes and the Pharisees ask him, who can forgive sins but God alone? They, uh, they, they know that God alone can forgive sins. They're like, you can't claim to forgive sins. That's why Jesus gets into this uh, sort of uh, conversation with them, because they're like, how can you say you can forgive sins? Only God can do that. He's like, well, <laughs> let me tell you, I can do both forgiving sins and I can, make this, I can heal this guy. So I can do both. They're both easy for me. I am clearly God in the flesh. So only God has the authority to forgive sin. But second, as we just talked about in Genesis 3.15, we've been waiting for years upon years upon years, generations upon generations, for this seed of the woman to come. We've been waiting for him to finally have dominion and rule over the seed of the, or sorry, over the serpent. And so throughout the Old Testament, uh, which is what we talked about, Ben and, and Josh a couple weeks ago, just how the covenants relate to each other. But these covenants are carrying us through, helping us to see, oh yeah, we're waiting for this seed to come. This is what he's going to look like. So we get more and more information about what he's going to be as uh, the various covenants. And then uh, in the Davidic covenant, we see he's going to be a king forever. So these are all pointing us to the person who's going to come in the flesh and rule as God's just, uh, just king. So at the, again, at the close of the Old Testament, we're waiting for only God can save, and he's going to do it through a human. Enter God the Son incarnate. So now we're going to look at who Jesus says he is. That's one of the most common uh, questions that people have is, does Jesus really think he's God, though? I mean, maybe, but I think the, the broad teaching of the New Testament, and it's clear too, crystal clear, that as we're going to look at these passages, God the Son incarnate is just that. He is God, okay? And Jesus taught that he was. So I need a couple of readers 
Um, let me see. Who can read Matthew 3, 16 and 17? Thank you. And then Mark 2, let's do 1 through 12. We'll pick a verse in there. Ben, thank you. Uh, Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Anyone? Yes, thank you. And then, excuse me, uh, let's do Matthew 14, 33. Who can do that? Thank you. Okay, so we're going to look at who Jesus says he is. So this is all taken from the Gospels of who Christ saying he is. So uh, let's turn Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Yeah, so Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. He is God the Son incarnate. Um, next one, we're going to see that Jesus has the, and the blank, I think, is authority, is the one that's blanked out for you guys, the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus is the Father's beloved son, and he also has authority to forgive sins. So that's in Mark chapter 2. Ben, I think you're reading that one. Let's go ahead and read... Yep, uh, starting in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Thank you. So, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, which again we saw is something that only God alone can do. Next one, Matthew 16. Oh yes, question. So, that always had me a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two statements, Jesus to forgive sins and Jesus to heal. And he said initially that the, the man's sins were forgiven. Mm -hmm. It was implied that his physical impairment was healed. And it seemed like, you know, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't, God doesn't lead us into temptation for us to stumble, right? But... He's also trying to get to the hearts of the Pharisees. So if you can just like clarify for me, why did he say it the way that he said it? Yeah, so I think it's almost like a um, like the Pharisees would have known that he was God by doing this. Because again, they've been waiting for this Messiah to come who's going to have uh, who's going to be able to heal um, people like this. And only God can do that. And I think part of the reason is they're denying Christ. Um, about that. So I don't think he's necessarily like leading them to sin. I think he's showing them like, no, I am who I say I am. Uh, he's not trying to like lead them into some sort of temptation. I don't think. Is that answer your question? Yeah, it, it was just because, um, but so you know that he has the power to forgive sin. Like he said in the second statement, but okay, which is easier to say that your sins are forgiven because that's the more important part. I mean, there's some people who don't have their physical ailments mm -hmm. healed, but if they put their salvation in Christ, then that's the most important thing. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but then he elaborates and says, but so that you know, yes, I can also physically heal people as well. So, you know, uh, check, sins are forgiven, check two, I can also heal, I am God. But it's just like, he's having to butt heads constantly with the stubbornness. Mm -hmm. It just confuses me sometimes. Yeah, so in a lot of the, the, what's happening in the Gospels with a lot of the miracles that are going to be happening, we're going to see that Jesus is actually like giving the people physical signs that he's like, they're pointing to him to like, ooh, only God can do this, only God can do this, only God can do this. So this is just one of many that if you read, even in the, just the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see so many miracles happening. And it's so evident to basically, it should be evident to the reader and to everyone watching, nobody does this. <laughs> We've been living for so long, nobody has been actually able to do this. But Jesus is here, and he can actually heal people. And not only can he heal people physically, he can heal people spiritually from their sins. And so that's what we're seeing in this picture of, uh, yeah, the, even from the, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, this is sort of like the main idea, uh, saying the time, Mark 1.15, uh, just a couple chapter or one chapter earlier, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's telling them from the get-go, repent and believe, because Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is right here. You need to repent and realize. Does that make sense? So, who had Matthew 14.33? Okay. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Yeah, thank you. So the reason why we pulled this one out is because Jesus does not stop the people from worshiping him. Which, if you uh, are thinking about the um, Old Testament, and, uh, even Acts 14, verses 14 and 15 talk about it, but there should be no, if Jesus is being godly and honoring the Lord and giving glory to God most high, he should not uh, accept worship from, uh, uh, sorry, worship should not be given to anyone who is not God. But Jesus never stops people from receiving worship because he knows it's rightly ascribed. Because he is the God, man, therefore he is due honor and praise and glory. So he, that's why he doesn't stop anyone. Again, pointing us to his divinity. And then, did, I, did someone mark 115? No, I just read that. Basically, we see that Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God when he comes. Uh, and that is part of his claim, saying the kingdom of God is right here. Okay. So I think the clear New Testament teaching is that, even, sorry, New not New Testament, just in the Gospels, is that Jesus saw himself as divine. Jesus saw himself as divine. He is God the Son, but he also, as Luke 2.52 says, increased in stature. He increased in, in wisdom and in stature. That verse tells us that he was both fully God, he was God, in, but he was also God in the flesh. Okay? He grew just like we grew. He was hungry just like you're hungry. Jesus was parched, right? Like, he was thirsty. There are all sorts of signs that he is really man in, he is actually flesh, fully man. Everything that you think, like all these things, it, he was that. He was fully man. Okay, so as we go here, I think uh, we're about to go into the other, some other New Testament teaching on what the, or sorry, what the incarnation means and why we're thinking about this. But I just want you guys to think about why is it important that we look at how Jesus uh, did what he did? Why is it important that we look at the how? And to illustrate this, I want you guys to think about uh, back in high school, back in the day. It's not back in the day for some of you guys. Some day it's like in the one day. <laughs> like it's like the future. <laughs> but uh, there's this sort of big idea. So if you're in high school or you've been through high school, uh, the, uh, there's this thing, there's this like sort of aura surrounding prom. There's this awesome, like, ooh, prom. And one of the things that everyone takes into account is prom proposals. 
prom proposals. There's this big sort of onus on the guys to do something big and crazy. Um, and one of the reasons that I think we pay attention to that so much is that by seeing how someone uh, shows their affections and shows their um, desires for someone, we learn more about them. We learn more about them by how they propose. Oh, you did it in this way. Oh, that was really creative. I see that. Oh my gosh, that was so cool how you did that. Um, and so I'm sure that you guys hopefully can remember some of, maybe there was some crazy ones. They were like, that guy is wild <laughs> um, or something like that. But anyway, there's this, they show us more of who they are and the love that they have for the, the person that they're going to. Yeah. So when you're asking about the how, are, you, are we talking about the how of his, his the entire ministry? Or? Oh, good question. Sorry. I meant the how of how he comes to redeem us. So if Jesus is coming to redeem us, we have to look also not just that, it's not, it's not just enough to say Jesus redeemed, like trust in Jesus, but how did he do it? That's also very important for us. That shows us more about who he is. And I think that's part of the motivation for Philippians 2 as we're going to look at. In the, in the coming minutes, uh, we're going to see that the that Christians are told to act a certain way based upon how Jesus has acted. So we're to look at how he did it also, and that's to motivate us in our lives. So now we're going to look at what do the other New Testament books tell us about who Jesus is. So can someone read John uh, 1? I think... This, this passage is very important for Christology, so let's just go ahead and read verses 1 through 18. Anyone feel co- Thank you. Yes. Thank you. So very important passage for us in thinking through who Jesus is. But first, let me ask a question. What does it mean that the, who is this word that's being spoken of here? And how do we know? Why is the word word used? What do you guys think? What does that mean? Caleb. Shows up all the time in the Old Testament. Shows up all the time in the Old Testament. Where? Uh, the prophets, uh, the word of the Lord came to such and such, saying, 
Okay, the word of the Lord. Anyone else want to say anything about that? Yes? The Greek word logos is the word that's like translated and it means truth. Truth, okay. Anything, any other? No, okay. So again, I think there's, there's multiple sort of theories about what this could possibly mean. I think the, uh, the, the most, um, yeah, the one that we should probably go with is that the word is uh, sort of this Old Testament word that is, and the, the reason it's word is because associated with God. So if you look at Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, and God said, all that stuff, the creation is happening through this word. Uh, Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Um, and then Psalm 119, verse 25 says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So I think that this word is, the reason why the title word is used here is that the word is God, but it's also distinct from God. So John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. What does it imply that somebody's with someone? alongside that they are not that person right you can't be with somebody if you are that person um, so there is two uh, persons be, uh, being observed here okay so the word was with God and so he's distinct it is God but it's associated with God in the Old Testament but it's also distinct from God so persons of father and son again going back to this Trinitarian understanding God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit okay so I'm going to reread verse 1 for us again. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so there's three things that the Word was in verse 1. Three things that the Word was in verse 1. First, the Word in the beginning was the Word. The, this Word was in the beginning. It was, bef- it was it's eternal, right? Christ the Son, God the Son, is eternal. Continuing on, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Again, pointing us back to this distinct relationship that there is two persons here. So we're seeing the, uh, the triune nature of God in, in John chapter 1. And again, John 1 quotes a lot from Genesis 1, which we just saw, the, the, and, the, and God said, and God said. So this is drawing upon Genesis 1 in John 1. Thirdly, as we continue on, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word was God. This word shares in the full deity of God. He is all God. He is fully God. And so the takeaways, I think this is your, your guys' blanks there on your papers. It says, from this verse, we see that Christ is eternal. Eternal. He has always existed and will always exist. He is distinct from the Father. Distinct from the Father. And he shares in the full deity of God. He is eternal distinct from the Father, and he shares in the full deity of God. Moving on to uh, the, another verse we're going to look at in this, in this section, John 1.14, John 1.14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is where we get the incarnation. Incarnation just literally means in the flesh, okay? And so this is John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. This eternal, 
God, distinct from the Father, but is fully God, has now taken on flesh. And so it's important to note that, it, as, and we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, but the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The person of the Word became flesh. Okay? He added to himself flesh. Not the divine nature. Not the divine nature. Okay? And so the subject is the Word and not the divine nature. I think that John is clear to make that point here. Okay? So God the Son adds to himself a human nature. But his divine nature is unchanged. He still, as John, we just read in the uh, one one that he was God. He is always God. Okay, and so the Son is the acting subject, acting subject or the person. And again, we'll talk about all that stuff a little bit more next week. Uh, and then, yeah. So I think John one, we're going to see this teaches us uh, who is Jesus. He is God the Son. This word is God, but he's in the flesh. He's incarnate. God the Son incarnate. So that's where we get part of our main idea. God the Son incarnate. Okay. Any questions on anything I've said? No? Yes, Caleb? Sorry, you said, what do I mean by not the what? Yeah, so uh, we're going to get into this a lot more next week as we study the the next part of it's vital for our hearts and also for our churches. Um, we're going to distinguish between person and nature. But important for us to know that person is the subject, okay? So when, when Christ adds humanity to himself, as we're going to look at in Philippians 2, we're going to see that he doesn't, his, uh, his person doesn't change. He adds a nature to himself. Yeah, and I'll give you, there'll be definitions next week. But first, I think the reason we're starting like this, it's important to note what, where we're getting this stuff from. But I really just want us to see, like, where does the, what does the Bible say on this? I don't want to come at you guys with all these theological categories. Like, no, like, what, is the scripture, what do the scriptures teach about who Christ is? That's why we're looking at, who does Jesus say he is? And who does the New Testament say Christ is? Who do they attribute, what do they attribute to him? And so that's why we're focusing a lot on, like, what does the Bible say? And then next week, we'll go into some distinctions and um, how to sort of guard our churches from uh, false beliefs about Christ. Any other questions? No, okay. So now let's move to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And can I have a reader for that? 6 through 11. Yes, thank you. Uh, give us one second. Okay, I think we're there. Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you. So, uh, again, I, I remember what we started off this section saying, that how Jesus did accomplish this goal of providing salvation for humanity is very important. And so we're going to see the depths that he has gone through to come to provide salvation for us. And Philippians 2 is one of the most 
eye-opening and awe-inspiring passages of just the love that Christ has shown for us in taking on humanity, adding humanity to himself. So first, uh, I think on your paper it has a summary that the, the son, uh, what is it, the son humbles himself and is exalted. The son humbles himself and as a result is exalted. So that's the, I think, sort of like the, if you're going to put like the main idea of these verses, the son humbles himself and as a result is exalted. So first we're going to begin with the son. The son. This son is who? Who have we seen that this son is? The son of Son of, he is divine, which means he is the son of God. Yes, the son of God. This is the uh, this is God in the that has taken on flesh right here. So fully God right here. And so uh, verse six again says, "Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." So he was in the form of God. He was fully God. Uh, and so at the beginning, we're also seeing that this is an act of the triune God. So God has uh, they, the being of God wills accordingly. So they have, it's not a divided sort of, ooh, I want to do this and I want to do this, right? They're all unified, okay? And so this is a, this is a unified desire and will of the uh, triune God. Second, the son humbles himself. Verses 6 through 8, uh, read verse 6 again. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Son of God has humbled himself. And the way I think that he humbles himself, we're going to see there's, uh, well, actually, yeah, let me first ask that question. What does it mean that the Son of God humbled himself? There's a lot of confusion about what this means. What do you guys think? What have you heard, Sharif? Um, by coming to earth and putting on flesh, he's, he's put off his glory to, to come to the earth among us and to bear the, the penalty that man deserves. Okay. Any other? He took on human nature. He took on. Okay, very important point. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, and so that's why when, when we're speaking about Philippians 2, I think it's uh, helpful to use the word adds. He adds human nature. Um, and the reason why we're going to do that, and we'll see, talk about this more next week, Christ doesn't uh, sacrifice any of his divine uh, attributes by, taking, by adding to himself human nature. Okay? He doesn't become less God when he takes on flesh. Okay? And so, yeah, there's various beliefs of what is this humbles himself mean? I guess he didn't, uh, he didn't, he couldn't do some things, and we don't want to say that. He is fully God. Okay, and so yeah, we've seen that the Son of God humbled himself, and now he's fully God and also fully man. He's fully man. <clears throat> and so we, um, yeah, it says, Steve William again says that we need to focus on Christ's attitude toward his divinity and not his status. His attitude toward his, toward his divinity and not his status. So again, when we think about this, um, that, that comes from verse that emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay? So when he empties himself and when he uh, adds to himself humanity and he humbles himself, we are not to think of that as him losing divine attributes. Instead, it's his attitude towards what he should do. He's, he comes to serve. Question? Is this indicated in how 
authority and the divine right and privilege to call upon armies of angels and to turn whatever he wanted into whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but foregoing that, he committed to the plan as given by the Father uh, to uh, take the form of the bondservant in practice. Uh, so he still has those rights, those privileges, and abilities. And is that, is that being reflected there? Yeah, so at any moment, Christ can have the full power of his, uh, of his, because he is fully God. There is nothing that he has lost by uh, adding humanity to himself. He is still completely able to do whatever um, is, God is able to do, which is anything, right? So he, has fu- he is fully God. Um, I think another couple of places that we're going to see in the New Testament, and we'll touch on this again next week a little bit too, but Colossians 1 Verses 16 and 17, touching to your point, this is talking about the incarnate Christ. So this isn't just Christ of all time, but also after he has come. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that is just as true of him as pre-incarnate as it is post-incarnate, okay? So that it does not change. He, he did not sacrifice. He did not lose any of his divinity by, ta- by adding to himself humanity. So we need to maintain fully God and fully man. And again, I think that the attitude thing that Wellen was saying uh, a couple of, of minutes ago that I referenced that we need to focus on Christ's attitude uh, toward his divinity and not, not his status of divinity. His status does not change, but his attitude does he is willing to serve, and he is the sent one. I think that that is evidenced in, in two ways. He emptied himself by taking the form of, so by taking the form of a servant, and by being born in the likeness of Ben, and uh, being found in human form, he humbled himself. So that is the way he humbles himself. Yes? Um, I'm just a little confused. In terms of, he is fully God and fully man concurrently, um, but does he not gain? Is he not exalted, his name exalted above all others by doing this? So he does gain something. Yes, so I think that is pointing us to that the pre-incarnate, so before the flesh, God the Son was God, was Lord. But now this person who has added to himself uh, human uh, nature, or sorry, added to himself uh, humanity, has now also been given, given the name of Lord again. Because of his service and because he added humanity to himself, he is now exalted again. And that so that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think it's saying that Jesus, the, the God-man, is Lord. And so he's getting this title ascribed to him because of his service. So again, remember our main point for these verses? The Son humbles himself and as a result is exalted. His service is the way to his exaltation. So I think that's also what the Messiah is supposed to be like in the Old Testament, as we see even passages like Isaiah 53, that this is going to be a suffering servant, a suffering servant. The way to his exaltation is his suffering. So when he says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, he's just referring to that during my time here serving as the representative of the second Adam. Um, is he gaining back his status that he had before the incarnation, or is that something in addition to what he had? So I think you're, which we're going to, I promise, we're, this is a confusing topic, so we're going to talk about person-nature distinctions next week. Um, 
but it's important for us to remember that God the Son is the subject. So just as we read in John 1, God the Son adds humanity to himself. Or sorry, the Word adds humanity to, to himself. In Philippians 2, the Word adds humanity to himself. Or sorry, the Son adds humanity to himself. And so we're going to see that the uh, person of the Son is added to humanity, but the natures don't change. So he's still able, all authority has been given to him because he is God in the flesh. Does that make sense? That's confusing? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're going to have some definitions for person, nature next week. And we're going to talk about common, what, what we should believe, but also what we must not believe because it goes against the wrong way. So. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. So the way he humbles himself is he has it all at hand. He just chooses not to utilize it in its fullest divine extent. Uh, the last part, say that again. He chooses not to use it in its fullest divine extent? Utilize it, utilize it in its fullest divine extent. So rather than just commanding the stones to be bread, he chooses to continue his fast in dedication to the Lord. Rather than commanding the angels to lift him up so that he would not strike his heel against the ground, he chooses to submit uh, to the path committed. So he still has that ability. He just chooses not to use it. Yeah, so this is where I think I'm hesitant to say agree with the last part just because I need to think about it a little bit more of the implications. But I think, yeah, no, no, no. The reason why this stuff, the, the wording, this, this is all very important wording. So if you change up the words a little bit, <laughs> you're going to be in a very questionable place pretty quick if it's the wrong words. So we have to... Uh, make sure that we're keeping the same words the same. So that's why we say that Christ, or sorry, God the Son incarnate is fully God and fully man. Always fully God, and after the incarnation is always fully man, okay? So, yeah, another verse just to think through this stuff about the, the divinity of Christ while he's in the flesh. Hebrews 1, 3, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So while he was on earth, he was actively upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
while he is being crucified. He is actively upholding the universe by the word of his power. There was never a moment when he was powerless or even had any of his attributes as fully God diminished. He is always and always only, or sorry, not only, but always fully God. He is never half God. He is fully God always. Okay, so as we get back to Philippians 6, remember the son humbles himself. So we just saw that in verses 6 through 8. And so I think an, a point of application that we're to notice this is if you look back and go to Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5, Paul is doing this. He's, there's a practical result that he has in mind for this. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. <laughs> so I'm about to go deep into this who is Jesus stuff, but you need to know this for how you're living day to day, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So think about his sacrifice. That's what I was talking about earlier. We need to remember how Christ has saved us, how he has made a way for salvation, because that practically affects how we live. He, his attitude towards his divinity was not one of, I need to get everything I hand, but he, he saw it as a way to serve. And so he was the one who was sent to, uh, by the Father, okay? And so that is... Uh, yes, showing us the depths that he has gone for us and that we should try and show to others. <clears throat> the next, uh, yeah, and so we talked about emptied. Um, again, we don't want to say that he emptied himself of divine, of his, of his divinity. He's always fully God. Christ took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. This shows that us that Christ did not lose divinity. Instead, he added humanity. He added humanity. And then finally, the son is exalted. The Son is exalted. As a result of Christ humbling himself, God the Father has now bestowed upon him the, what does it say in uh, verse 10? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think this is showing us that Jesus is, not, not this at the name of Jesus, but at the name of Yahweh. At the name of Yahweh, he is Yahweh. Every knee is going to bow. We see this in Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 23. It says, starting verse 21, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So I think this is saying Jesus is fully God. He is Yahweh. Everyone that you've been reading about in the Old Testament, I'm him. Okay? And so as we think about the teaching of this, the Son of God had to take on flesh to rescue us from sin. The Son of God had to take on flesh. He had to humble himself so much. He had to add to himself humanity. We were so helpless that he, God, had to become flesh for us. And without the Son adding humanity to himself, we would have no hope. No hope. As Josh talked about last week in the law, we can't fulfill the law. We need help. <laughs> we can do it. The Israelites can do it. We can't do it. Nobody can fulfill the law because we, we need a new heart. But because Christ has done this for us, the Father has exalted the Son twice, and now all who are in Him have a way to salvation. 
So Jesus is God the Son incarnate, and we need to behold his glory. And so putting it all together now, Christ is awesome, and we need to be captivated by the glory of Christ. And we say awesome, and I'm like, you're awesome. I mean, like, awesome. Like, we must bestow awe upon him. We must look to him and gaze upon the wonderful mystery of the incarnation. How awesome that Christ, God, would add, God the Son would add humanity to himself to save us. And so we see what the Bible teaches about who Christ is. He is God the Son incarnate. The whole Old Testament is waiting for who would be able to save us from sins. Because God alone saves, and we need a man to do it. And so it's crystal clear that Christ, God the Son, is that very person. And so as we are concluding now, I want to pause here and camp out on a couple of applications just for, I think we should, again, back to our main idea, we want to behold the glory. We don't just want to know, oh yes, Jesus is God and fully man and we have the right language. No, we want to look to Jesus. We need to look to him. Jesus, change my heart. Show me how much you have done for me, what you're like and how much I should love you. And so I think, yeah, one of the ways that we can apply this is he, God humbled himself for you. If you will trust in him, he has taken the penalty for all your sins. He has washed you white as snow. God has humbled himself for you. Number two, God added flesh to himself for you. He took on, can you imagine, God has literally never had any limitations and he took on our flesh. <laughs> you know how we get hungry all the time and we're always tired and we're always like this thing, this thing, all this, this thing's going wrong. Jesus took on that for us. There was no need for him to experience hunger or thirst or any of the normal human things that we go through. And he did that for you. He added humanity to himself for you. And third, God the Father provided a way for salvation through his son. The reason that we're expecting this God-man is because we need someone who can live righteously for us. He is the new Adam who is the, uh, the best Adam, okay? He does what Adam should have done, and he fulfills the law so that all who are now in him have righteousness, have way, a way to life. Uh, any questions about anything? And then I'll read one last passage, just because I think it's a cool way to conclude, and then we'll be done. We'll pray and done. Any questions? Sharif. Um, I, I guess maybe one more time if you talk about the, the full thrust of like the humbling, kind of what it means that you know, Christ humbled himself. It seemed like there was a lot of um, aspects to that, but I mean, if you could capture it in one, I guess. I yeah, I think I would just say God the Son adds humanity to himself. He adds humanity to himself. Ben, would you add anything? Okay. Josh? Can I share a verse about that? Yeah. Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that even though he adds to humanity, when he becomes a man, he, you know, he has the position of like just being with the Father in extreme comfort. He takes on flesh and lives in human body that has brokenness and fragility and gets that he dies on the cross, right, for our sin. Um, so that positionally he becomes poor uh, as this servant king. And I think mm-hmm. that is that's how he humbled. He didn't give up any of his divine nature, per se. 
but positionally when he became banned, it, it, it uh, was just positional poverty. Mm -hmm. That's part of the humility that falls on the Philippians. It did not come to be served, but to serve. Any other questions? Yes. So I've heard uh, people from other faith systems. Like, do you mean Christians or? <laughs> no. Like okay. Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. I think at one level, I think this is what the Bible teaches, right? So we believe this is God's word to us, and this is how salvation had to happen. But there is always going to be mystery to this, right? There's never going to be like, oh, this makes complete sense that God is, or that the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God and fully man. That doesn't logically, like, we're, there's going to be always some sort of like, I don't know how this happens, right? Um, but we, do, we can press into a lot of what the Bible teaches and make sense of and look at a lot of what the Bible is teaching us about who Christ is. So, yeah, I think ultimately, like, there is mystery, but there's, uh, that's, like, showing us the beauty of God, that he would do this that we don't understand, I think. So, would anyone else add anything to that? Yeah, and I think too, like, I think part of the tension that we want to kind of just push a little bit more on what does it mean for God to be fully man, or sorry, for God the Son incarnate to be fully God and fully man. So I think there's two sort of, uh, like, ooh, this makes complete sense and I understand everything, or I understand nothing about this, I'm not even going to try. So we don't want to do that, I'm not going to try, because we're, we're trying to like, understand and use definitions and terms, like, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? So we learn more about him through that. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about that question too. I don't know. And if this helps too, but I was like thinking of an analogy for it. So like, um, I know to be careful in how we um, <laughs> apply certain you know, like human things to divine things. But like, the president has an amount, uh, an awesome amount of power, a lot of power, right? But he's still human. You know, he can still die. Um, so, you know, multiply that. You know, by blah, whatever. And then you have the the nature 
the divine, the divinity of God, the awesomeness of it. And then I think when he's saying fully man, it's that like to still have the nature of of, um, of mortality. That's I mean, it's not the nature, the human nature of our failings and everything. It's more it's the mortality of our physical body is what he took on uh, because he went to the cross and died. You know, it says in his word that he died, he gave up his last breath, and he died. You know, and to, to what you were saying before as well that even though he died, the son passed, uh, perished on the cross. The father is still in heaven, and everything is still sustained. You know, it's cause, so it's not like. God died and then the whole, you know, all creation crumbled. Yeah, so we'll talk about that a little bit next week too, just how we think about that. Um, I'm just gonna, we're out of time. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, just to conclude us, and then we will pray and be adjourned. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is, uh, why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children have given, God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, the God-man, fully God who added humanity to himself to become fully man. And we pray, Lord, that yeah, as we think about these big doctrines, that they would shape our hearts, that we would love Christ all the more, and that knowing that he is able to help us when we are being tempted, help us in our weakness. So we thank you for him, and we pray that we would trust in him all the more for salvation. We thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen.